Jesus, we lay down our burdens this morning. Bring our hearts before you. Whatever burdens, whatever problems, whatever heavy loads we brought into the room this morning, would you take them from us in these moments? We would be solely focused on you. Your spirit speaking to us through your word, working in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Give you guys a little bit of a history lesson this morning, and this history lesson will serve as a allegory of sorts for the text in Galatians five. A few years ago, USA Today did a piece on the Korean Peninsula. I don't know how many of you guys are into geopolitical realities, how much you've studied the history of what's happened there, um, the hopes of reunification being highlighted in that article, especially um, this area in between North and South Korea called the DMZ or the Demilitarized Zone, which acts as a border between the North and the South, is one of the most heavily guarded stretches of land in the world. It's only two and a half miles wide, but it's 150 miles long, so from from coast to coast on the peninsula. It divides it north and south ever since the Korean War ended in 1953. It's littered with scores of mines and barbed wire fences, and it is nightmarishly difficult to cross. Uh, and places that look most serene, if, you, if you're able to visit there and you can see these fields in the DMZ from, from beyond the fence and it's just wildflowers and poppies and lilies, um, those are actually the most dangerous places because they are lovely minefields. And the flowers have grown up after years and years of the mines being laid there untouched. And so you, you say, this just looks like a beautiful place. And it's like, yeah, but you wouldn't want to go in there. And then there's the Joint Security Area, which is a special buffer zone inside what's known as Truce Village, about 35 miles north of Seoul. And centered on this DMZ buffer zone is the military demarcation line. This is the actual political border between North Korea and South Korea. Overstepping that line, if you have the chance to go to it and you don't want to step over the line um, because you'll immediately be shot by snipers that you cannot see. You just you don't you don't even put your foot on the line, and a North Korean citizen that wants to defect to South Korea would have to gain access to the to the MDL to the to the military demarcation line, which is an incredibly dangerous venture. Uh, there are three in this little village. There are three buildings administered by the UN and the Joint Security Area, painted with that bright blue UN color. Right, you, you see the roof, the the tin roofs painted blue, and on the north side, there's a building called Penmon Hall, which looms. In the south side, there's Freedom House, and those are across from each other, and the Red Cross and visitor activities on the south side. Um, This was all intended to be a meeting area for separated families, north and south, to meet. The north declined to use it for that reason because they fear people leaving the north, like they would would just defect. Can't imagine why they would do that. so around 700 United States soldiers and Korean, South Korean soldiers stationed in the area. There's, a, there's actually one farming village inside the DMZ, 500 yards from the border. Um, and it's not really what you call a vacation destination. It's not the kind of place you want to go to just hang out. So a little bit of the history of how this happened. I promise you we're going to get to Galatians. But you, you really need to understand North and South Korea a little bit to understand the, the dichotomy that Paul's going to paint in just a moment. Okay, Before there was a south in North Korea, the peninsula was ruled by a dynasty known as the Choshan, which existed for more than five centuries. 
That ended in 1910. Um, during, during that time, an independent Korea, unified Korea, had diplomatic relations with China and Japan. And that all ended when uh, Japan was very imperialistic and they annexed the peninsula. So Japan kind of took over. There was a colonial rule that lasted for 35 years. And then, so, so then World War II happened, right? And when Japan surrendered to the Allies in 1945, the Korean Peninsula got split into two zones of occupation, the North and the South. The South was controlled by the United States and the North controlled by the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union. So amid the growing Cold War tensions after World War II uh, between Moscow and Washington, in 1948, the two separate governments were established, so one in Pyongyang and, and one in Seoul, and you got Kim Il-sung as the, the leader of North Korea, a former guerrilla fighter who fought under Chinese and Russian command, and you got Syngman Rhee, who's a Princeton University graduate, staunch anti-communist. He becomes the first leader of South Korea. And so you can see the separation already, right, Just in the, the worldview and the political structure. And so in an attempt to unify the Korean Peninsula under the communist regime, Kim Il-sung invaded the South in July of, uh, or, or June of 1950 with Soviet help. And that brought um, South Korea and the United States to arms. They were backed by the UN. So there's there fighting for, for three and a half years until this armistice agreement in 1953. Now an armistice agreement is not a peace accord. The, the, actually, technically, there's still at war. It's just a ceasefire, right? So this is the reality of the Korean Peninsula. You got divergent politics of the North and South shaping the different ways Koreans look at life in the world ever since the split. South Korea, you've got a vibrant democracy. Um, you've got uh, mass movements of students, intellectuals, and middle-class citizens, upward mobility financially. And in the North Korea, you have repression, a surveillance culture, uh, punishment, pervasive features of, of social life. Uh, the state relies heavily on coercion and terror as a means of sustaining, sustaining their regime. And I share all of that with you this morning by way of introduction to the text because this paints a very good picture of the Christian life. We are divided people. We still live in these bodies of flesh, but the spirit lives in us. And so we're trying to yield ourselves to the spirit and flourish, and yet there's this oppressive, autocratic regime of sin and our former way of life that keeps trying to invade and take over and bring us back to that way of living. And, and, and still living in the body of flesh, we're dealing with sin, we're fighting temptation, the constant call of our enemy to come back and be united to him again. And in the middle of that is this no man's land, this incredibly dangerous place to visit, much less a good place to live. And despite all the danger and all the warnings, Christians seem very fascinated with our our spiritual DMZ. We want to linger there. We want to play in it. We want to dabble with sin. And I'm, I'm talking about the desires of the flesh, not the actual DMZ, but the danger is just as real. It's just as real. So let's look at the last half of Galatians 5 together this morning. If you got your Bibles, Galatians 5, 16 to 26. If you're in the Version Bible app, you can go to events and click Emmaus Road Church and follow along in my notes. Paul picks up in verse 16, he says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's go back and look at 16, 17, and 18. Paul says, but I'm saying to you is walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So Paul's first point is there is a very real war raging inside of you every day. It is a war between the spirit of God and your flesh. And every day you have to enact your will to put to death the flesh and walk in the spirit. Walking in the spirit means living consistently under the authority of God, that you are submitted to his word and you are yielding to the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's what that means. You're you're submitting to God's word, you're, you're yielding to the Holy Spirit. So when you walk in the spirit, you're not gratifying the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is never gonna lead you into sin, never. Right, And the other side of that fight is your former way of life prior to Christ Jesus. That, th- those desires that marked your life prior to being born again in Jesus are desires that lead you into sin and lead you into bondage and eventually lead you to death. And if you have been born again, then returning to those desires of the flesh will actually keep you from what it is you truly want, which is to move towards Christ and to walk in the fullness of what he has for you. And those sinful desires, when you give in to them, they lead you into the works of the flesh. And this is what Paul says in 19. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. In fact, let me just stop and go back. I'll define these. Let me just give you the definition of each one of these. Then we read through these lists and we go, yeah, that's bad. What does it mean? Well, sexual immorality is any sexual experience or expression outside of the context of covenant marriage between one man and one woman. That's a long definition, but it's necessary in our culture. Let me just say it again. Sexual immorality is any sexual experience or expression outside the context of covenant marriage between one man and one woman because covenant marriage between a man and a woman is the only place God designed for our sexuality to be expressed. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Impurity. It's degradation. It means to be polluted. He says sensuality. That's a flagrant expression of sexual pleasure, or more to the point, it's, uh, it's anyone who's reliant on the five senses for pleasure with no real higher pursuit. I'm not interested in truth. I just want to feel good. I want to feel better. I want to feel something. That's sensuality. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. He mentions sorcery, and you're like, well... 
I don't have a tall pointy hat. But the use of power gained from the assistance or control of evil spirits, especially for the purpose of divining, getting information that you would not normally have, or necromancy, which is speaking to the dead. So sorcery. Enmity means being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something, not, not really have any place in the body of Christ, inside the body. Strife is anger or bitter disagreement over fundamental issues. Jealousy, desires to have what others have, which doesn't even really belong to you. That's jealousy. He says fits of anger, that's hostility, impulsivity, recurrent aggressive outbursts. Can't control your temper. Rivalries, competing for the same thing against another person instead of just trusting God, right? Dissensions, it's a disagreement that leads to discord in the body. Divisions, separating something into parts. In this case, the body of Christ, which is supposed to remain whole and intact, is being chopped up. Envy means discontented or resentful. Uh, longing, like a resentful longing. I, I want this, but I'm angry that I don't have it because it's in someone else's possession. Um, drunkenness. Drunkenness here is intoxication, leading to, uh, extending to illicit substances beyond alcohol. Uh, there's not really a, uh, pharmakia is kind of the best word in Greek to talk about being under the, uh, under the influence of a foreign substance, whether it's alcohol or drugs. And it's, it's an altering of your state of consciousness. Orgies. A gathering involving unrestrained indulgence, especially sexual activity and drinking. And then he says, just, just to cover all his bases, make sure he got everything, and things like these. Things unbecoming of a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is to say this. When these things are indicative of your life, seeing these things continually happening uh, with greater intensity and frequency or any kind of regularity after you've come to Christ, there is, uh, it's clear that Christ is not the center, okay? These things are not indicative of a work of the Spirit. Now, I do not believe, nor do I teach, that a person can lose his or her salvation. I do not think the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, nor all the passages about what God grants to believers when they come to faith, allows for such a view. But I do believe, and I have seen time and again, people who make false, conver- they make false conversions, they make false professions of Christ, because their understanding of the gospel is wrong, or they've got a half gospel, or their attitude and their motive motive is, is wrong. It's like, I'm going to come to Jesus because I get a get out of hell free card. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to live like hell. And it's like, that's not salvation. That's not the gospel, right? If these things that are listed here uh, up to verse 21 are indicative of your life, I just want to say to you this morning, you need to stop and do some serious evaluation concerning your claim to be a born again follower of Jesus Christ. I, will, I would not go as far as a pastor to say, you're not saved. I don't have that power to unsave people. But I will say, when I look at what the scripture says about what a believer looks like, and I look at a person's life, and it's antithetical, even though they're mouthing the words, I know Jesus, I'm going, there's a disconnect here, and you need to really press in to understand what that is. That's a big deal. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So this list of the fruit of the Spirit, let me do the same thing for you this morning. Let me define these for you. Love is not a feeling. It's not. Sorry. That's what our culture teaches everybody. Love is, I feel so, that's Twitter-pated to borrow from Walt Disney. That's being Twitter-pated. Love is an act of the will. It's a decision to sacrifice for the good of someone else. That's what love is. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus said, but that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus didn't wake up that morning and be like, I'm so excited to get crucified for you. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with his feelings. It has to do with an act of the will to sacrifice for the good of someone else. He says joy, is, that's delight and great pleasure. Peace, free from disturbance or conflict, being at rest. Patience, oh, oh, ow. The ability, the capacity to accept delay, to accept trouble or even suffering without getting angry and upset. Ah. You want a trial? Pray for patience. And you'll be stuck in traffic. You'll find yourself in the longest line at Walmart. God will answer that prayer. I promise you. Pray for patience. Kindness. The quality of being friendly, generous, considerate. He says goodness means virtuous, morally good, which according to Jesus is something that's only found in God alone. Only God is good, Jesus said. So if you want goodness, you've got to have a relationship with God. Faithfulness, the quality of being loyal. Gentleness, being tender and kind and mild-mannered. And then lastly, self-control with the ability to control yourself, particularly your emotions, your desires, your expressions. Can I just say to you this morning, these things cannot be manifest by the will. They can't. You can't muscle up the fruit of the Spirit. Can't do it. Now, now contrast that with the works of the flesh. Notice the language is different. When it comes to the flesh, it's works. When it comes to the spirit, it's fruit. Do you guess that difference? I can make works of the flesh. I can do that. I've got the power to, to make works of the flesh. I do not have the power to create the fruit of the spirit. I must yield to the spirit and walk with the spirit. He brings about the fruit. I bring about the works of the flesh. That's, that's a very important contrast. In fact, um, let me just show you something this morning. Where's the closest? This is the ugliest iceberg ever. Uh, uh, this is my go-to for discipleship. So whichever screen you got. Um, tip of the iceberg, typically less than 11% of an iceberg is visible above the waterline. The other 89% is what you can't see. And that's why I think this is really a good illustration of, the, of, of, of our lives. Because we call this section up here above the waterline the managed life. This is the, the less than 11% of who you are where you give all of your time, effort, and energy to how you look, what you drive, how people perceive you. Because that's what we care about in our culture, right? And we manage this very tightly. I'm, I'm going to make sure I have the newest clothes, the best car, the, uh, whatever it is. Because I want people to see those things about me. That's the managed life. Um, what will happen is when a person comes to Christ, God begins to take them down below the water, and then these there are holes in the iceberg. These are the wounds that are inflicted in our lives, sometimes by our parents, sometimes by our circumstances, sometimes we, we all have wounds, right? And, and God will start poking around. 
in the wound because he's the great physician. He's the healer and he wants to bring healing. Now here's what will happen in your life. You'll see a reoccurring pattern sometimes where the same um, uh, patterns come back again and again or it seems like you're saying to the Lord, didn't we already deal with this like twice? Didn't we? Why are we dealing with this again? And it's God very lovingly, very deliberately bringing you back into these places because they're not really healed. Uh, some of you have heard the story. I was on a plane years ago going back to Georgia to preach on Sanctity of Life Sunday at our old church and and I was reading an article in, in the plane about two things I just don't care anything about the Civil War and military field medicine and I was reading about military field medicine during the Civil War now you need to know I grew up in Terra Jonesboro the home of Gone with the Wind so if there's anybody who should be passionate about the Civil War you think it'd be me and I'm just like I just don't even care and but I was just bored so I'm reading this article. And the article is really interesting because the article is saying uh, during the Civil War, the guys would come off the field with shrapnel wounds. They have a big gaping wound in their thigh from shrapnel, and they would clean the wound. They'd stitch them up, and a couple of days later, they'd be, they'd be healing up, and they'd send them back out. And then in like four or five days, they'd just drop dead. And it wasn't because of new wounds. It wasn't because they got shot. They were just dropping dead, and they are like, what is going on? And they finally began to discover sepsis and gangrene. And you try to cover that wound and heal it up too fast, and it's not actually clean from the inside out, you'll die. You'll get blood poisoning. You'll set up an infection. And because it's healed at the surface, nobody knows that your blood is being poisoned, that you're on your way to death. And so this is what God will do. He'll he'll just stick his finger right here because he's a great physician. He'll go, no, we're going to stint that open. That's what the medics had to do. They had to stint the wounds open and clean them very painfully every day three or four times a day until the wound began to heal from the inside out, not from the outside in. And that's what God will do to us. So, so, so this is the wounded life. Still not where God wants us because these wounds, when we relent and we really let the Lord start to do his work in our hearts, he takes us down to this portion of who we are that most of us never discover about ourselves. We never allow ourselves to go here. This is the place of, called the intimate life of John 15, where Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. So, so here's what happens. We, Jesus will get us in some circumstance where we have to deal with the hard stuff and he's poking and it's like, oh, cut it out. What is the bare minimum I got to do, Jesus, to get back to my managed life? That's kind of our default response, right? It's like fruit of the spirit, Do I need to be more patient? I promise I'll be more patient. Lord, please stop poking that wounded place and let me get back to my managed life. And and so we'll try to muscle the fruit of the Spirit here to please the Lord. I'll be more patient. I'll be more joy-filled. I'll be more loving. Please stop, Lord. I just want to get back to my managed life. And he says, no, that's not what I want for you. I want you to abide in me. I want to be intimate with you. And that's what this whole thing is about. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away, he prunes it, that it could bear more fruit, and the ones that don't bear fruit, he takes them away. He says, already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you, so abide in me, and I will abide in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. You can't manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, listen, you can do nothing. 
You can do nothing. God brings the fruit when we abide in him. And so Paul closes the chapter with these two verses. He says, so if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Don't look at the people around you in the body of Christ. They've got it so good. God loves them so much more than he loves me. He's like, no, cut that crap out. I love you. You're just dealing with different stuff. I'll deal with that person's stuff when I'm ready to deal with that. Just just don't do that. Don't start comparing yourselves. Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he is God and he directs our lives as followers of Jesus. He didn't save you so you could sit and stagnate, which is an illusion anyway. We kind of, we can't do this place. Like I want to get to the place where I'm really good with the Lord so I can just coast for a while. And it's like, there's no such thing as stasis, even in life. You can't find it because everything around you is always changing all the time. Always. You don't come to Christ, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you don't come to Christ and then lock it in on that day when you were 14 years old and you made a profession of faith in Jesus and, and, and now you're at 14, you're holy. And now if you just sit real still, and if you don't look at anyone with lust, and, and, and you manage not to, if you manage to go to church twice a month, like you're good, like for the rest of your life. Like that's not how this works at all, right? You don't drift towards holiness. The Spirit leads you, and you have to follow. And so the challenge here, Paul says, is to stay in step with the Spirit as he leads. You've got to listen and obey and stay in step with the Spirit. So really what we're talking about this morning is death to self. You've got to die to yourself. And you're like, I did that yesterday. Hey, that's great. Now you've got to do it again today. And you have to do it again tomorrow. And you have to do it again the next day. So much of what we studied in Galatians is, is played out in these Old Testament uh, pictures with individuals, groups, and nations, right? And we talked about Sarah and Hagar uh, and that allegory Paul used. But uh, I would submit to you that when it comes to putting the flesh to death, there's another powerful Old Testament image that most people don't even realize is in the text. In the book of Esther, you guys know the story of Esther? Uh, the Jews are in exile in Babylon and the king's uh, tired of his wife and she's not obeying him. She's so like, you're out. Find me a new wife. Let's have a beauty pageant. I'll pick the prettiest one. Um, super moral dude. In uh, the book of Esther, so the no direct mention of God though he is very present throughout the book. And if you know the story of Esther, you know Mordecai is the uncle of Esther who becomes the queen. And it's Mordecai who uncovers this plot by a guy named Haman who is a palace official whose desire it is to kill all the Jews. He wants to kill all the Jews. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know how it plays out uh, as God turns those schemes of evil upon themselves. But what many people don't know is, uh, is what, what I'm going to tell you about the, the Haman and his sons. Way back in 1 Samuel 15, God commanded King Saul to completely destroy this group of people called the Amalekites. And Saul did not obey God. It was one of the things that led to the end of his kingship. But um, apparently, and we're not told how in scripture, some of Agag, King Agag's children escaped because 600 years later, we're told we come across Haman, who's an Agagite. He's a descendant of King Agag and his 10 sons. Now, this is a person who represents the historic enemy of the Jews and all that is of God. And Haman has been killed in the story and his 10 sons with him. And the name of Amalek is blotted out forever just as God promised. He just took 600 extra years to fulfill the promise. God's not slow as some count slowness. He has a timetable. 
But each of the name uh, of Haman's ten sons in the Persian language contains a very interesting reality for us. Each name of his ten sons contains the word self. Listen to Listen to this. It reveals a little bit about Haman, don't you think? He was stuck on himself so much that he would name all of his ten sons after aspects of himself. Dude. Now I will struggle with the Persian names so you can laugh. Parshandatha means curious self. Dalphon means weeping self or self-pity. Aspatha means assembled self or self-sufficient Paratha means generous self or self-indulgent. I want to be generous, but I want to be generous to me, right? Adalia means weak self or, or more likely humble self. Have you ever known anybody so, so uh, proud of being humble? <laughs> Haman must have been that kind of person going around like boasting about how humble he was, naming his kid. Aradatha means strong self or self-assertive. Paramashta means preeminent self or self-ambition. Aryasa means bold self. Arida means dignified self, and Vaisatha means pure self or self-righteous. These are his ten sons, and they are all put to death at the end of Esther. All of them put to death. All these selves are put to death. Isn't that interesting? And we have to put ourselves to death. Self must die in order for victory to be accomplished. And self has to die for, for the people of God because self is a threat to godliness. We start to assert ourselves. And, and pride comes before destruction, Scripture says, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So if we're going to walk in victory, folks, in the power of the Spirit, then Haman and all his sons have to die. All those selves that creep into our hearts have to die. No more self-pity. No more self-sufficiency. No more self-indulgence. You can't go on bragging about how humble yourself is, right? I know that's bad grammar. But selfish ambition, self-assertion have no place in Christ's church or among his people. And self-righteousness is the enemy of grace. It's the enemy of the cross. If you've got self-righteousness, you don't need Christ's righteousness. Put it to death. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's interesting, coming full circle, that in North Korea, the state propaganda and ideology of juke or self-reliance, is used to consolidate the rule of Kim, Kim Jong-un while reproducing a certain mode of thinking among the people. The word juke is used almost everywhere in North Korea. It's a difficult concept for us as outsiders, but it's kind of a political ideology. The English translation that's usually given for juke is self-reliance. We're strong. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But to observers of North Korea, juke seems more like a religion, actually. And it, it appears to inspire North Koreans as representative of state power. Uh, the essence of juke uh, is the idea that man is the master of his own destiny. Interesting. Interesting. Here's that picture again, north and south, free, slaved. And there's that DMZ in between. Self is the enemy of grace and the cross, so put it to death. If the life, in the life of every Christ follower, there's a line of demarcation. There is a DMZ between a life defined by walking in the spirit and a life defined by indulging in the flesh. You cannot live by the Spirit and indulge the desires of the flesh. Nobody plays kickball in the DMZ. You can't. 
You cannot play there. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot let your guard down and treat it casually. You are called to make war on your enemy and on sin. The Spartans had a saying, Sivis Pacum Parabellum, which means if you want peace, prepare for war. I would just tweak that a little bit and say, Sivis Pacum Facbellum. If you want peace, don't prepare for some future war. Make war now. Make war. Don't prepare like it's some future reality. Engage right now like your life depends on it because it does. So you get these Koreans, both north and south, talking about wanting unity. You know what the problem is? Well, you got two different leaders, two different governments, two very divergent agendas and worldviews. And the south is this free and thriving uh, nation. And the north is this uh, place under bondage and totalitarian dictator. And people are starving to death and can't leave. Which place would you rather live in? Which place would you, uh, where, where would you rather be? Which, under which government? Under which ruler? And even though the people of the South increasingly want reunification with the North, it can never happen in the current configuration. In fact, I go so far as to say that the only way you get a unified uh, Korean peninsula is for the, the leader in the North to die. He's got to die for that to happen. And that's the picture that I believe the Spirit is painting through Paul in this text. Self must die. Juke must die. Make war on sin and do not indulge the desires of the flesh. Our mortal lives, these, these bodies of flesh, these dying bodies can never fully unify, can never fully integrate with the Spirit of Christ in us. And this is glorious because this is why the, the physical death and the real, literal, physical resurrection of the dead and these bodies being resurrected is such a key part of the Christian faith. Because we can never have full unity now. Only in death and resurrection is there complete unity with the Spirit. When we see Jesus face to face, we will be complete. We will be made whole. That is our great hope. That we will be made one and united and whole with the Holy Spirit forever. No more separation. No more schism. No more divide. No more war raging in our flesh. No more DMZ. Death and sin and hell gone forever and only true and lasting peace in the presence of the king. What a wonderful promise from God's word, amen? Father, we pray this morning that that would be our great hope. And we pray, Lord, this morning that we would walk in the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. So right now, right where you are, spend just the next few moments praying that prayer. That, we, that you would, by the power of the Spirit, you'd walk in the Spirit, and you would not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray for that right now. I had a different clothes this morning, but Jeff handed me this, and I thought it was really appropriate. Um, Han... It's a Korean feeling of sorrow, oppression, unavenged injustice, and isolation. Hard to explain to Americans. There's not really an equivalent for us, given the difference in our histories and our countries. But it's something that every Korean knows and understands. It has a very complex meaning, the word Han. And uh, it's, it's sorrow, regret, grief, resentment, and a dull aching of the soul. It's this aching of the soul um, that I think is so appropriate to this division 
they, they long to be one. They long to be made whole. Han. And that's the feeling we all have. Existentially, we all know that feeling of feeling divided. Um, can't live by the Spirit and indulge the desires of the flesh. There's this division in us. And uh, so walk in the Spirit this week. Walk in the Spirit so that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. So that you may be a faithful witness, faithful ambassadors of Christ Jesus to those who do not yet know Him. Represent Him. Speak of Him. Make Him known. The Maestro Church, you are sent.